Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. There are moments in living when certain simple acts take on a kind of joyous or celebratory intensity. This poem is about one of those acts, one of those moments. It's called From Blossoms. From blossoms comes this brown paper bag of peaches we bought from the boy at the bend in the road where we turned towards signs painted peaches. From laden boughs, from hands, from sweet fellowship in the bins comes nectar at the roadside, succulent peaches we devour, dusty skin and all, comes the familiar dust of summer, dust we eat. Oh, to take what we love inside, to carry within us an orchard, to eat not only the skin, but the shade, not only the sugar, but the days, to hold the fruit in our hands, adore it, then bite into the round jubilance of peach. There are days we live as if death were nowhere in the background, from joy to joy to joy, from wing to wing, from blossom to blossom to impossible blossom to sweet, impossible blossom. And thank you, Lee Young Lee and the Academy of American Poets for that lyrical meditation as summer subsides into autumn this week. And now on Arts Express, I like the way he's been created as a kind of Sherlock Holmes, and I enjoyed playing all these different parts of him, and really the madness of Poe. Raven's Hollow, a conversation with William Mosley, moving on from his many manifestations in the Chronicles of Narnia, the young British actor appears in a very different supernatural gothic immersion shrouded in darkness, as this lesser-known Edgar Allan Poe in his youth and as a military man and disgusted West Point cadet who orchestrated his own court-martial as an exit strategy, and Raven's Hollow as described by the writer-director Christopher Hatton as neither biography nor one of Poe's stories, but rather, quote, a really cool mystery about Poe's youth and a mystery that allowed me to fill it up with my own imagination. First, Cadet Poe at West Point produced by Riva Thomas from their archives, and what it has to do with Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum and the Spanish Inquisition. Then we'll hear from William Mosley. In 1842, Edgar Allan Poe published a short story entitled The Pit and the Pendulum. The historical setting for the piece is the Spanish Inquisition, during which a bound prisoner is faced with a bladed pendulum as an instrument of impending death. Among many questions raised by the story is where Poe found the inspiration to feature this scientific and technical apparatus in this novel and macabre way. How did the mechanics of the pendulum enter Poe's consciousness? One possibility is Poe's brief period of education at the United States Military Academy at West Point. A decade before Poe's tale of the pendulum was published, he was admitted to the academy as a cadet. While the idea of Cadet Poe might seem incongruous in the context of the writer Poe's ultimate reputation, it was a sound choice for young Poe, who had previously served two years in the Army. The Academy in 1830 was a small and spartan place, with only a few buildings, inadequately and perilously heated. There were only 232 in the Corps of Cadets. This contemporary map drawn by Cadet William Chapman as a class assignment, shows barracks, a mess hall, and one academic building. Cadet Chapman graduated in 1831, thus overlapping with Cadet Poe. First-year cadets, or plebes, 
studied French and mathematics, which included an element of surveying. Poe spent about eight months immersed in this rigorous course, and we know that while he was at West Point, the Academy was in possession of an Atwood's machine with a cycloidal pendulum. It is hard to imagine where else Poe would have been exposed to such an apparatus. If West Point left its mark on Poe's literature, Poe also left his mark at West Point. As one of our most famous non-graduating cadets, Poe is memorialized by a marble monument within the library's special collections facility. In addition to the official records of Poe's cadetship, the library holds two other mementos of Poe's short time at West Point, a check and a letter. Poe left West Point on February 19, 1831, just ahead of his March 6 dismissal. The court next proceeded to the trial of Cadet E.A. Poe on the following charges and specifications. Charge the first, gross neglect of duty. Poe was absent on several occasions in January of 1831 for many duties, including evening parade, reveille roll call, class parade, and academic duties. Charge the second, disobedience of orders. Poe's second charge was also due to an absence, this time after being ordered by the officer of the day to attend church. The court found Poe guilty of both charges and dismissed him from the services of the United States as of 6 March, 1831. On the 10th of March, he wrote from New York an eloquent appeal to the superintendent, Colonel Sylvanus Thayer, asking for an introduction to the Marquis de Lafayette, whose army he intended to join. New York, March 10th, 1831. Sir, having no longer any ties which can bind me to my native country, no prospects, nor any friends, I intend by the first opportunity to proceed to Paris with the view of obtaining, through the interest of the Marquis de Lafayette, an appointment, if possible, in the Polish army. In the event of the interference of France in behalf of Poland, this may easily be effected. At all events, it will be my only feasible plan of procedure. The object of this letter is respectfully to request that you will give me such assistance as may lie in your power in furtherance of my views. A certificate of standing in my class is all that I have any right to expect. Anything further, a letter to a friend in Paris or to the Marquis, would be a kindness which I would never forget. Most respectfully, your obedient servant, Edgar A. Poe. The check, endorsed by E. A. Poe, is the sum raised by a voluntary contribution of a dollar and twenty-five cents apiece from 135 cadets, rounded off by an anonymous benefactor. The voluntary subscription paid for the printing of the second edition of Poems by Edgar Allan Poe, which is dedicated to the U.S. Corps of Cadets. And now, William Mosley as Edgar Allan Poe in the gothic mystery thriller Raven's Hollow, including a rather somewhat Poe experience in his own life when Mosley was once struck by lightning. First, some scenes from Raven's Hollow. What does this to a man? What are you doing, Poe? Edgar! Who did this to you? I couldn't say what it is. Spirit. Devil. Indians call it bad medicine. Why does thou sit upon my grave and will that lips to speak? Why does thou weep Upon my grave, and will not let me speak. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, William Mosley, and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. What intrigues you about Edgar Allan Poe that led you to want to be Poe and to be part of this movie? 
Um, you know, it was an interesting one because I obviously knew Edgar Allan Poe, I think, the same way everybody else did, that he was um, a kind of mad genius, uh, that he, you know, had a fairly dysfunctional life, but he created some incredible work and he died fairly young. You know, that was really my, uh, the next impression of my knowledge of him. Um, but then I um, read the script and I saw this whole different side to his personality, that he was um, you know, he was a military man, that he was very together, he was um, extremely uh, well-spoken, he was well-read. Uh, it was a whole different side that I really um, hadn't realised. And I thought, well, that would be great for other people to see that as well, for them to kind of get an idea of who this guy is. Um, and similarly, I love, uh, I love horror stories, you know? I love ghost stories. Um, I'm always the first one at, like, a, a fair to, like, Go, go go to a haunted house ride or something like that. So I kind of wanted to make a film that would uh, make people jump. And this mm. film had both those both those things in it, so yeah. Now the writer and director of Raven's Hollow, Christopher Hatton, has clarified that this film is neither a biography of Poe's life nor one of Poe's stories, but rather, quote, a really cool mystery about his youth and a mystery that allowed me to fill it up with my own imagination. What can you say about that unconventional perspective on Poe and anything you may have learned about Poe yourself by immersing yourself in his character for this movie? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting uh, way of putting it. You know, I I learned that, um, yeah, I just I just learned a lot of, um, about him that, you know, people specifically from that time period, they were very different to, we, to how we are nowadays. And I, I liked the way he spoke, you know, I liked his manners, I liked his demeanour, I liked uh, the way Chris had um, created him into a kind of, almost like a, a Sherlock Holmes character, you know, because obviously he started the, um, he's, he's kind of like the godfather of detective fiction. And so Chris was very focused on him being a kind of detective character. Um, and so I, I enjoyed playing all those different parts of him and, and really, the madness of Poe um, didn't come out until the very end of the film, which is a nice art to play. Mm. And do you feel, as British and an outsider looking into Poe's life, that you, and by extension British culture, has viewed Poe in a different light as opposed to Americans? Yeah, you know, actually that's a really good question, because I didn't know Poe's works very well. In fact, we didn't learn him in school, and so I didn't know much really about him. I know a lot of Americans do, and actually a lot of French people are very familiar with um, Edgar Allan Poe. So, um, you know, for me, not knowing about him was kind of nice. But I had no preconceived ideas, and so I kind of got to come at him quite fresh. And also, I didn't feel the pressure of playing a literary hero. I mean, if I'd been playing Charles Dickens, which is a very English He's a very English writer. Mm. Everybody knows him. Everybody watches the period dramas. I, I think I might have felt a lot more um, anxiety uh, to play the character, but I felt pretty free, and I just trusted Chris's direction and guidance. And actually, I'm very happy with um, the way he's come out as sort of an Anglo, you know, American character. Um, actually, his parents, um, his mother was English, his dad was English, and he was educated in the UK. Mm. So there is some Britishness to him. And what have you come away with in terms not only of Poe's life and perspective, but American life at that time in history as portrayed in the film? Yeah, obviously in the um, early 1800s, America was um, a very different place uh, than it is now. You know, obviously America has expanded a lot in terms of landmass and um, with Manifest Destiny being a, a massive take on uh, you know, the American mentality of going out into the frontier and uh, making something for yourself. Whereas at that point in history, the United Kingdom was very well established as much as it is now. I don't think it's really changed much. The towns haven't changed much. I, mean, I can tell you the people haven't changed much. But um, the, uh, the, 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 you know, America was really in its infancy at that point. And so it was quite a beautiful time in order to create something for yourself or to go out and and have initiative or to be innovative. There was a, a very much free world that was uh, being started for the American people. And you're also coming out and on the line with Mel Gibson playing a radio host threatened with murder by a caller. 
And I'm especially interested in this mystery movie about radio as a host myself of this show. Can you say or not if you're that caller or what you're up to in that movie? Well, I can honestly say I'm not that caller. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, um, the movie is, is a, a kind of cat and mouse. Um, like it's really um, Mel, Mel's character and my character. And we um, have to try to uncover a, a plot against Mel's family. Um, but, it, it, but what's interesting about the film is it's, uh, we shot it in Paris for L.A. And amazingly enough, I've seen the film, it works. And in saying that, there's a lot of twists. There's a lot of turns. You never really know where the film's going to go. It's like a reveal on a reveal on a reveal. It's like a, a whole magic trick that, you're, that you don't realize you're watching. So it was a very fun film for me, a very clever film. So I'm excited to see what you see it. And where are you calling from? I'm currently in the Cotswolds. Um, I live in a village where, near where I grew up. Um, and so I'm in a little, just a little village outside of Stroud. That's S-T-R-O-U-D. Because speaking of drama, what can you say about what's going on around you in the UK right now? A new monarch, a new prime minister, an ongoing war, and a progressive economic crisis. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, I'm watching the funeral on television right now. Ah. Fun enough, it's, it's on. Mm-hmm. And they, there's a procession uh, with uh, the Queen's coffin going to Windsor Castle. And um, everybody's walking, and it's um, very moving, you know. It's incredibly moving. I have to say, um, you know, obviously, every country goes through ups and downs, struggles, and, you know, there's gonna, there, there is an economic crisis at the moment. But... Um, to see people pulling together like they are with the death of uh, the Queen and, you know, King Charles now taking the throne, it, there's a definitely a sense of unity in the country and definitely a sense of... Um, I'm sorry, there's a part of it. Um, definitely a sense of unity and definitely a sense of collaboration between people and people pulling together. And I think the Queen's integrity, her um, you know, service and her um, gift of giving... I really think will have a massive impact on the people of this country and and I really see a a bright, beautiful future ahead for us. And in terms of drama in your own life, somewhat like Poe, you were once struck by lightning. Do you feel that changed you in any way? Or do you feel it changed you personally or how you see the world? Um, You know, when I was, after I was struck by lightning, um... Only what it did for me. This is, this is purely from a completely pragmatic point of view. It made me realise how important safety is on set, because uh. you know when we're filming, there's so many people that are needing to get shot. You know, you're needing to get the thing. You're running out of light. You're running out of time. You've got to get this. You've got to do that. You've got to do. You know, you, we haven't got time. That's all you really ever hear. And um, it's. You know, safety is really the most important thing. We've obviously seen accidents recently on set. You know, people just sort of having to do what they're told without knowing that it's safe. And, and for me, that's really the only thing that I really put my foot down when it comes to my work and my work environment. Now, I never want to see anything unsafe and anybody put at risk. And do you feel struck by lightning has changed your life personally or artistically? Um, I don't know if it has. Maybe it has in some way. Um, maybe it has. I don't know. You know, I, I mean, I definitely felt my heart stop at the time. So probably did not, probably did, like, die for a second. But um, I, I don't know whether it has. It's just like, a, it's just like another chapter in, in my life. I've had so many extraordinary things happen to me. I, I'm almost, like, not surprised, you know, at this point. Mm. So I don't know, yeah. And is there anything else you'll be coming out in anytime soon? Yeah, I have a medieval film coming out, which I made with Michael Caine. I'm in the Czech Republic. It's about a Czech warrior uh, from the 1400s called the Andrzejska. Um, And I also have an an artistic film coming out, which is a bit like a Bender's film, a bit like Paris, Texas, um, called Land of Dreams, which is directed by the Iranian visual artist Shireen Nishat. That was with Matt Dillon, Isabella Rossellini, and uh, Shida Band, and that will be coming out. That's out in select theaters now at Lemley Select Theatres. But so, yeah, I have um, three or four films coming out, which is great yeah. at the moment. And any last word about Raven's Hollow? 
Um, my last word about Raven's Hollow would be uh, to anybody that's thinking watching hasn't seen it yet. You know, this is a classic gothic horror. There are obviously ravens, there's crosses, there's churches, there's a, there's a supernatural beast, there's even Edgar Allan Poe at the front of this gothic horror, who um, obviously is the father of um, gothic horror writing. So, you know, you're in for a great ride, you're in to see a great movie, and, um, you know, I, I, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope I've done Edgar Allan Poe justice. Mm. Okay, thank you so much, William Mosley, for calling in. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Bye, bye. And Raven's Hollow is in release online from Shudder this week. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with a deep dive into John Melrod's memoir, Fighting Times, on the front lines of the class war. Quote, there were roughly 10,000 revolutionary students in the 60s and 70s that left the campuses and went to do industrial organizing. When I walked into a meeting of union contingents of steelworkers, these guys all with buzz cuts and very big bellies, I said, I'm in the wrong meeting. And my surprise at the end, they said, we'll show you how to do it. Here's Melrod discussing this rip-roaring memoir as, quote, the hellraiser for decades ever since his groundbreaking union organizing on the shop floor for the United Auto Workers. When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. As corporations are making record profits, workers are being squeezed more than ever with budget and personnel cuts, lower wages, dangerous working conditions, and precarious work schedules. But workers are fighting back in surprising ways. Our guest, John Melrod, has been involved as Hellraiser and union organizer for decades, ever since his groundbreaking union organizing on the shop floor for the United Auto Workers in the 70s and 80s. He's now written a rip-roaring memoir called Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War, about his fight to make workers' lives better. Hi, John. Hi, how are you doing, Jack? Great, thanks. Really glad to be speaking with you. John, your book starts off with a rather shocking conversation you had with your doctor about 20 years ago. Could you please tell us about that? In 2004, I had been experiencing very, very strong pain and discomfort in my abdomen. And it turned out to be uh, pancreatic cancer. And after surgery, I was given only six months to a year at most to live. And it wasn't just, you might have this much time. It was, put your affairs in order. This is all the time you have left on this earth. Wow. And what was your cancer most likely caused by? Very straightforward. The surgeon in the report that I still have said that this cancer was due to industrial toxins, predominantly exposure to trichloroethylene, which was a very toxic uh, solvent. When metal goes through a punch press, there's a layer of grease on it, and that grease has to be burned off. And trichloroethylene is used to burn that off. And shockingly, I was asked to go into a concrete pit without any form of respirator and to clean it out. And I was like a frog. Every 30, 60 seconds, I had to jump out for fresh air and later learned that it's similar to very, very deep drunkenness that you can pass out and die from that exposure. So how's the class war coming? Well, I survived that, that battle of the class war against yeah. all odds. Um, I determined that I was not going to leave. I had a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old, and I couldn't leave them behind. And I resorted to a lot of alternative treatment and holistic lifestyle to address the cancer. But at the end of that, I decided that 
my kids wanted to know, well, dad, why did you graduate college and then go into factories where the chemicals were going to kill you? And my answer to them was, I better write a memoir so that you have some idea of why I devoted my life to the industrial organizing that I did. You know, I went through the student movement and was very active at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the struggles against the Vietnam War and hmm. for Black liberation. I also always was drawn to the struggles of workers. My second summer that I was in Madison, I signed up to be an organizer for the United Farm Workers. We would speak to union contingents that came to Madison to study at the School for Workers. And at one of those particular sessions, the leader of the effort, Jesus Salas, addressed a contingent of about 50 steelworkers. And when I walked into the meeting, I looked around and there were these guys all with buzz cuts, all with nylon blue jackets, United Steelworkers on them, and very big bellies. And I said, I think I'm in the wrong meeting. Well, to my surprise, at the end of the discussion, one of the guys put up his hand and said, Brother Salas, I make a motion that the steelworkers join you on your picket line to boycott grapes this Friday at Kroger's grocery store, and we'll show you how we do it. So I said, well, <laughs> this is going to be interesting. So we got there, and all of a sudden, in March, the 50 steelworkers into Kroger's. They filled up wow. their shopping carts, overflowing with ice cream on the bottom. When they got to the checkout line, they abandoned their shopping carts and marched <laughs> out. And they marched out singing the song Solidarity Forever. And I'll never forget this. There was a line in Solidarity Forever which said, we shall bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old. And I said to myself, that's pretty damn radical stuff. Maybe there's more to this working class thing than I had known about. And that really set me on a course of realizing the power that workers had, the power that unions had. And if we really wanted to change the social order in this country, we couldn't do it on a college campus. We had to move to the community where working people lived and into factories where working people worked. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of armies magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. And you eventually found yourself on the shop floor of the American Motors plant in Wisconsin. And of course, American Motors was the fourth big car company in the United States. They made the Rambler and the Nash, if I remember. That's correct. I think the first time you were working for AMC, you were fired. Tell, tell us about that. Well, one of the reasons I went to AMC was I had been working in a small factory, mostly women, where we were making paint trays for Sears and Roebuck. And it was a pretty weak union. And I knew I wanted to get somewhere where there was more of a more militant union. And everybody talked about those guys over at the Motors. You know, they don't work. They just go out on strike. In fact, in 1969, there had been 13 Wildcats. Those are illegal strikes where the guys walk out to protest grievances in one week alone in the Kenosha and the Milwaukee plant. And I said, that sounds like a good place to be. So I went to the hiring hall and there were, it was like going to Woodstock. I mean, it was all young people. And there were a lot of workers of color who had particularly come back from Vietnam. And black vets were very, very militant. They had just served in the jungles of Vietnam. Many of them came back bitter and angry, not knowing why they had been over there. And they immediately gravitated toward getting organized. And the first struggle that we were engaged in, the company announced that we'd be working on a Saturday. Well, we had always partied on a Friday night and a Saturday night. And we said, that'll be the end of our partying if we got to get up at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning. So I looked at the contract and I found a provision that said all voluntary is overtime. So I went to the copy store 
and Xeroxed copies of that page of the contract and handed them out at work. Well, sure enough, the word spread like a you know telegraph on the assembly line, but overtime is voluntary. Let's turn it down. So when the company came around, there always had to be a steward whenever a supervisor addressed an hourly employee. That was part of our agreement. And ask people to work on Saturday, you could hear it all up and down the line. We ain't working. Saturday's our day. We work hard enough in five days. So they couldn't get a workforce. Well, for us, it was the first demonstration that, wow, we have some power here if we can determine whether or not we work. Soon after that, the company announced that there was going to be a speed up of the assembly line. And for anyone who's ever been close to factory work, that's one of the most dirty words in industry, speed up, because it always means that you're going to go from working harder to harder. So this time, we had already begun to form a group of young guys, you know, trying to get more organized, not just handing out Xerox sheets, but actually meeting and making plans. And we met together and we, div- we printed a leaflet, very short, with a few words scratched on a uh, mimeograph machine sheet that said, uh, don't work the speed up. We have a right to, to work at a normal pace. Of course, there were some people that weren't happy about it. As I was handing out the flyer, a bucket of cleaning fluid got dumped on my head from the fourth floor. And, you know, they thought they could, a bucket of cleaning fluid would stop us. But in fact, it spread like wildfire because the old timers jumped in and they started showing us what you do to fight speed up. You, you ride the line, which means you do your job until you've completed every element of it. So you often ended up 10 or 20 feet out of your workstation and you push that guy down the line and he pushed another guy down the line. So nobody could do their jobs because they didn't have any room to install the trunk rubber or install the taillights. They just dumped them into the car. And the aisles were filled up with unbuilt cars. The roof was covered with cars that needed to be repaired. Uh, Enough people engaged in riding the line that the company had to Mm -hmm. back down and agree to hire more workers in every section and create new jobs which is a fundamental union principle, which is why should some work overtime when there's still unemployed workers out there? Well, after that, Mm -hmm. word came out that they were going to get me, that the president of the union put out the word that the international and the local union didn't want troubles like makers like me, you know, in the plant. And interestingly enough, I now have found out through repeated requests to the FBI under the Freedom of Information Act, that American Motors ran to the FBI and said, how do we get rid of this guy? Well, sure enough, a couple days later, after that word spread, some security guards came up, lifted me up off the floor, dragged me out, but they were able to get me out of the plant. Is there aught we hold in common with the greedy parasite who would lash us in the serfdom and would crush us with his might? Is there anything left to us but to organize and fight? For the union makes us strong. You openly organized as a communist, and can you tell me your thoughts about that? How did you deal with the red baiting? Because, you, you know, some of those workers were not politically evolved in any way. Well, that's, that's true. And, and there were, still was a legacy of the McCarthy period. But people had seen me working and had seen what I had done as organizing. And basically what I said to people was, look, politics aren't the essential question here. The real question is, are we going to strengthen the union? Now, we can talk about politics all we want, and I'm more than happy to. But right now, the caucus we're building is a caucus to improve the conditions under which we work, to reform the union so that rank and file democracy prevails. And we also wanted to, you know, educate people politically. There were three Black Panthers who were on trial for murder, fabricated charges. They were the Milwaukee Three. And we took Mm -hmm. that right into the factory and organized around it. So, yeah, there were some people that you know, were hesitant, 
around me, but that wasn't the majority. In fact, the proof was in the pudding when it came time for the union meeting to consider whether or not to call a strike vote to have me reinstated. The older workers put out a flyer saying strike to get Melrod's job back. The black workers in a caucus called Black and White Getting It Together put out a flyer and the meeting hall was packed and the majority were there to vote to call a strike vote to have me reinstated. Uniquely, we had the right to strike over all grievances. It was a very particular local, UAW <laughs> Local 75 in Milwaukee and 72 in Kenosha. When Ruther in the 40s gave away a lot of the more democratic militant rights in the UAW in exchange for wages and you know benefits and vacation, to do it, he had to give up what had empowered the rank and file in the formation of the union. So we had 100% voluntary overtime. We had the right to strike over all grievances. And we had one steward representing every 35 people on the line. So it was really, we still had the ingredients of building and you know organizing a very militant workforce. Even yeah. though we won the vote, the president of the union said that the clicker was counted, that was used to be counting the ballots was broken and threw it on the ground and ruled that as a voice vote, we had lost and that I was discharged. Wow. And many of your fights in the union, John, sounded like they were with the union leaders themselves. We see this over and over in union struggles. The union leadership seems to have different interests than the workers, the rank and file. So what can be done about that? And what is your insight into that? So what I found out very early on was it's not like the whole union can be painted with the same brush. There are good people in there. And to really get things done, you have to ally with those good people. It doesn't mean they're going to be with you on every issue. And it doesn't mean you're going to be with them on every issue. But where you can make a tactical alliance, that's very important. And an example right now is in the Teamsters. The reform slate that won the international elections, they're not everybody's best candidate, but they're, they're pledging to get rid of the two-tier wage system at UPS. They're pledging to organize at Amazon. So, you know, you've got to find those people that are willing to basically engage in class struggle unionism. You, you wouldn't think that a union would be against the basic democratic concept of one member, one vote. And you forced a vote on that at the UAW union convention in 1983. Tell us about that. In 79 and 80 was the real beginning of concession contracts. First, they forced through a very concessionary contract at Chrysler. And within a year or two, half of the workers that voted to accept concessions at Chrysler were laid off. And the lesson we drew from that was that concessions don't buy you jobs. Basically, how many jobs there are in auto is dependent on the economy. Now, the, there was a very angry group of rank and file workers and local leaders who felt they had been betrayed by the international and forced into accepting concessions. So in, in 1983, we decided that we would run a slate for delegates to the UAW convention in Local 72, and that we would make our main issue what was called one member, one vote. Because at that time, the rank and file members of the UAW didn't have the opportunity to vote for international officers or regional directors, which meant it was basically a top-down autocratic process by which the administration caucus, which began under the Ruthers, was the caucus that ran the entire operation. So our local voted, 1,200 people attended the union meeting and voted unanimously to endorse one member, one vote. And the union put up $100,000 to build the campaign nationally. And we went out to locals all over the country, sending out letters, getting on the phone, organizing a national movement for one member, one vote. At the convention, we were successful the first night in gathering probably 100 and 150 delegates to a meeting to plan how to take this to the convention floor. Well, of course, the International has 300 
staff members who are on the floor trying to undercut us, that we're the ones that are actually jeopardizing democracy, etc. So when the vote came to the floor, Fraser, who was president of the International at that time, would not call mm-hmm. on me. So one of our delegation got up, who Fraser didn't know, and he put his hand up. Fraser called on him and he threw a lateral to me. He said, I give the floor to Brother Melrod. So I gave a rousing speech about the need for democracy and the history of democracy in the UAW. Now, we didn't win that vote, but we laid the groundwork for a real Mm -hmm. strong movement. And that came to realization in the last year because people voted for one member, one vote. The system was changed. And right now, that's the election that will be for the first time since the 30s decided by the membership. It is we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. We stand outcast and starve amidst the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. My son is a uh, union organizer within the UAW, and he's uh, very active in a reform slate that's uh, challenging the administration slate that's been entrenched there. And uh, he thinks they have a, a decent shot at it. It is exciting. And I'm, I'm, I really have to say how much I respect these young people like your son, because for the last 20, 30 years, the union movement was in the doldrums. And now all of a sudden, we've got a plethora of young people around the country, some going into Starbucks, some going into Amazon, who are really revitalizing the union movement along very democratic and militant principles. Coincidentally, right before I got on this call, I received an email from a friend who said, I want to introduce you to one of the reform candidates in the UAW. He's read your book and he'd like to speak to you about some of the lessons he learned, how he can use those in the Uh election that you're referring to. His name is Brandon... Mancia. Mancia. That's the guy that uh, my son is uh, really working closely with. And again, that's bringing new life into the union. And I think that those people are going to be the future of trying to turn the UAW around. Although I also advocate that people should be going to work in those non-union UAW plants in the South because they've got to be organized. I was told that, but there are 1 million auto workers in the U.S. now that are not members of the UAW. Well, you know, the book is so great and so well-written and, you know, tons of lessons for, for organizers. You were at AMC when they were about to be taken over by the French company Renault. And, and what can you say about organizing in the face of today's multinational corporations? When American Motors was first acquired in part by Renault, we had to really shift gears. I wrote a letter to the International Metal Workers Federation in Europe, mm. and I said, we're a UAW local at American Motors, and Renault is increasingly buying greater and greater interest in it. We'd like to be put in touch with Renault workers in France and other countries. Well, nothing happened for six months until we got a letter that included a 100-page study in Renault and an invitation to a meeting for the first world conference of Renault workers. And we began to educate people that we had to identify our interests with workers internationally. Two of us stewards were chosen to attend that meeting. And even though I wasn't an officer in the union, I was given the opportunity to address Monsieur Elson, who was second in command of Renault, and pin him down as to what his commitment to Kenosha was. Because I said, I started out by saying, look, we have a better contract than the big three, and we're here to make sure that you don't come after us to try and take away gains that we've made over the years. And the Renault World uh, Conference went on the record saying that they opposed using any local to whipsaw other locals. In other words, opposed lowering Mm -hmm. the conditions and the wages in our contract to try and bring in more work. 
So that was a big step when we went back to the plant and told people that, you know, we've garnered support from no workers in France and in countries all over the world. In your book, you really stress the one-on-one relationships in your union organizing, after work, hanging out at the bar with fellow workers, eventually inviting them over to your house to hang out and so on. Has social media changed the basics of union organizing, do you think? Well, I think it has. I think it has in some ways it has on a positive note and other ways it's changed it on a negative note. When I went into American Motors, my very first thought was, I've got to get to know everybody I can get to know. And I'm a very social person. And I made friends right away. I mean, on the weekends, we were out going to taverns. You know, I joined the softball league. I joined the bowling league. Things I would have never normally done. Um, Because people don't want to see you as some sort of political pedantic, you know, lecturing on politics. They want to know that you're one of them and that you have the interests that are the same as theirs are. So that was very, very important. They have taken untold millions that they never toiled to earn. But without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. What's your assessment about what's happening with the Amazon union and their decision not to align with any of the big existing unions, but to form their own union? Well, that's actually going on in a number of places, interestingly enough. At Geico, there's the Geico Workers United. At Trader Joe's, there's the Trader Joe's Workers United. And then, of course, at Amazon, there's the Amazon Labor Union. I don't know what the final outcome of that will be. I tend to believe personally that there's got to be some sort of affiliation like they do at Starbucks. Starbucks has organized Starbucks Workers United, but they're affiliated with Workers United, which is affiliated with um, the SEIU, a much larger union. And that provides them a certain amount of financing, legal help, et cetera. So I'm not going to, I don't think the answer is in on whether that tactic will work or not. But I think that any organizing that's going on now is important and it's not right to prejudge it. Let's see how it develops. Let's see how workers at Amazon and Geico and Trader Joe's are able to organize themselves. Has the Amazon union started reaching out to Amazon workers overseas? I I know in some European countries like Italy, the Amazon warehouses already had some pretty good unions. There have been ties. In fact, there was a labor notes conference in Chicago in June with delegates from a number of countries in Europe. I think one was Poland. And they met with the Amazon workers that had come from all over the country to Chicago. So that's an important relationship. Same is true with Starbucks. Up in Canada, Starbucks, I believe, is is organized by steel workers. And, you know, that's the workers here have reached out to the steel workers local at Starbucks in Canada. Uh Um, Interestingly enough, I've been working with a number of the Amazon organizers. And one of the young guys that I've been working with who read the book said he's been raising the issue of the right to strike over grievances. At um, Starbucks, they're used to walking out over unfair labor practices because they're not bound by a contract that keeps them at work. And he wants to enshrine that in the contract, which I hope they can do it. You know, we know that Starbucks is going to fight them tooth and nail, but that really gives the workforce a unique power to be able to get grievances settled and working conditions, you know, adhered to. John, what's the most important thing about union organizing that you know? The most important thing is to go to work with people, to share their lives, to understand their issues, to understand the kitchen table interests, as they say, and to understand what their needs are and be there to address those. Um, A union has to be a lot more than just a bargaining session every three years on a contract. A union has to be integral to people's lives. So we integrated the union into people's lives, socially, sports-wise, trade union-wise, 
um, it played a big role. And of course, I had a lot of parties at my house where they were always very mixed in terms of women and men and racially. And it set an example for the kind of unity that can exist. They've got to be brought together on a social basis outside of the plant as well as inside the plant. As we wrap up, Jonathan, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I guess to be self-interested, I hope people do go out and buy a copy of Fighting Times because it's really important, A, for young people who are, you know, need inspiration to realize that you can fight the big fights, tackle the tough fights, and make a difference. But also, there's many people of my generation that have written to me and said, wow, you wrote about our lives. Somebody finally has documented it. Say there were roughly 10,000 revolutionary students on campuses in the 60s and 70s that left the campuses and went in to do industrial organizing. And nobody has really written in depth on what that life was like and what was accomplished. So I'd ask all those people of my generation that have continued to believe in the need for changing the social order to read the book because we've still got time on this earth to do as much good work as we can. Well, thanks, John. Thank Um, you really so much. I've been talking with John Melrod, the author of a wonderful book, Fighting Times. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.